Hello, I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Multilingual Mamas. Welcome back to another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Today, we have the pleasure of having with us Dr. Tanya Yoning, a professor of linguistics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her research focuses on second language acquisition, and she also teaches a course on child language acquisition. She's a bilingual speaker herself. She speaks Russian and English, and she's also a multilingual mama. Hello, Tanya. Hello, nice to be here. Thank you for uh, joining us. The uh, first question that we wanted to start with was just if you could give us a rough timeline for child language acquisition, kind of the cliff notes of what is happening at what age. Sure. Now, you know, one caveat right away, especially given the, the title of this podcast, is that a lot of this research on the timeline is based on monolingual child development. Um, you know, and then that's a separate question of how similar or different it is in the case of bilingual children. But the typical timeline for, you know, typically developing monolingual child growing up speaking, hearing only English or hearing only Spanish, or for that matter, being exposed only to American Sign Language, modality doesn't really matter, is the first year of life is when the child, the baby, is figuring out the, well, in the case of spoken languages, the sound system of the language. So it's now pretty well established that babies start out as universal learners. They are attuned to what language, spoken language might in principle sound like. And until about six months of age, they haven't, or six to eight months, they haven't really zeroed in on the specifics of their language. So that, which is not to say that those first six months, nothing is happening. Those first six months, they're of course learning to communicate with their family, right? They're getting used to hearing a language. Um, they do become attuned to the overall rhythmic property. Then during the second six months of life, that's when they're really starting to figure out, okay, this is English I'm hearing and not Spanish or vice versa. Um, of course, they don't know terms like English and Spanish, but they get used to which sound sequences tend to go together. So a baby exposed to English figures out at some point um, that, you know, a word in English can begin with sun. That's, that's pretty common. You get words like snow. Um, but and a word of English is not going to begin with mug. That's just not a possible sequence in English. So basically, they spend those six months figuring out which sounds tend to go together. Um, you know, if there are a lot of if their language allows just consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, if they're hearing Japanese versus lots of consonants together, if they're hearing, say, Dutch or English. And so by the time of their first birthday, they're pretty well attuned to the sound system of the language, which also lets them pick out individual words um, of the language. So, you know, it's, it's on average somewhere around their first birthday that babies or toddlers say their first word. It can be for some, it can be later for others, but also comprehension precedes production. So that one-year-old, even if they're only saying one word, they can by, this, by that point understand a lot more than one. Um, so young children typically um, understand, comprehend more words than they can say. And then between their first birthday and their second birthday, their vocabulary keeps increasing at first in very, very slow steps. Maybe there's a new word that they say every week, then it becomes a new word every day, then it can become 10 new words every day. At some point you have this vocabulary explosion. You know, again, typical number might be 18 months of age. 
that again is going to be earlier for some kids and later for others um, when they start producing lots and lots of words new words learned every day and they're also putting these words together so this is where they go from just saying you know baby cup to say baby cup so um, you get that vocabulary development you get words put together and that's also when you start seeing grammatical elements emerge in their speech. So if it's a baby, a child who is hearing English, they might start putting the plural marker S on a noun. If they, it's not just one cup or two, they might actually say cup. And it's actually kind of paradoxical. Research suggests that children who acquire a language with more grammatical elements actually start using them sooner. So in English, a lot of verbs have no grammatical elements on them, right? You just say, you know, I walk, you walk, they walk, we will walk. It's just a verb walk with no endings. It's only for the past tense that you do walked or for the third person that you do she. Compared to a language like Spanish, where the verb has a different ending for every possible person number times. Um, also, as always, comprehension precedes production. So you've got this young child who's maybe saying just two words at a time, but they can comprehend pretty lengthy sentences. Comprehend sentences of you know three, four, five words, and they can figure out who is doing what to whom. So there are some pretty ingenious experiments which have toddlers listen to sentences like "Cookie Monster is pushing Big Bird," and they see one screen on which dressed as Cookie Monster is pushing one dressed as Big Bird, and a different screen on which it's the other way around. Big Bird is pushing Cookie Monster. So you've got those two characters; they both show up on both screens to figure out which screen is correct. The, the baby really has to understand what the role of the word. And they're very good at that. You've got 16 month olds who might only be producing one word at a time, not even two, can nevertheless understand the difference between Big Brother's pushing Cookie Monster and Cookie Monster's pushing. So they're getting all their grammatical knowledge in there, um, even while they're still saying one or two words at a time. And then, of course, it all takes off. Your typical three, three and a half year old producing pretty lengthy sentences with all sorts of grammatical elements and understanding pretty complex sentences as well. Some very complex phenomena, such as understanding the difference between, you know, Mary looked in the mirror at her versus Mary looked at the mirror at herself. Okay, that takes a bit longer. That might not be fully understood until the child is five or six years old. But by five or six, that child, you know, acquiring the, is, is really a grammatical specialist in their native language. You know, even no matter, even if they're not yet literate or barely, even if they're barely literate, when it comes to spoken language, they're pretty much as proficient as any adult. They can comprehend pretty complex sentences and they produce for such complex sentences. So, typically, once you get into older children, the question becomes much more about you know literacy and written language, but the bulk of the spoken language. Right. Thank you so much. What a great answer. So our second question today is, is there any reason a parent should be worried about raising their children multilingually? Uh, any developmental reasons, social reasons, or psychological reasons? So linguist answer is most certainly no, right? We, um, there's no reason to worry. Um, we know that, you know, children are born with a disposition to acquire any human language or languages. There's nothing in the brain that says there has to be only one language. In fact, you know, around the world, if you look outside the United States, lots of societies are bilingual. It's in many places, it's the norm for children to grow up with two languages, and it's becoming much more common in this country as well. Um, there is all sorts of research suggesting that even extremely young children know perfectly well when they're hearing two languages. So they're not confused. 
So a child who is growing up hearing, you know, the parents speak English and Spanish or English and Chinese or any language combination, they can tell even as babies most of the time that the two languages are different. Even before they know any words, they pick up on the subtle sound differences between the languages. So they tune into the fact that they are acquiring two different linguistic systems. This is not to say that they keep it completely separate. You know, young toddlers growing up with two languages may words. You know, they might uh, say a two-word sentence in which, you know, the first word comes from one language and the second word from the other. That doesn't mean they don't know the difference. Very typically, they do. It's, you know, if you have a child who is saying, you know, one spoon, and there's the one in English and the spoon in Spanish, well, maybe they don't know the spoon in English. Or maybe that's just the, maybe it's easier to pronounce in the Spanish or whatever their language is. So there are all sorts of reasons for why they must might mix words. It's not an indication that they don't know the difference. Kids are actually very good at picking up on the difference. They're very, again, in typical development, um, kids very attuned to who around them speaks which language. They're going to be a lot more likely to mix those two languages together if they're speaking to an adult who, who as far as the child is concerned, knows both languages. Then maybe they go off to daycare and they're very well, daycare provider only speaks English, let's say, they're not going to be bringing in the other languages nearly as so kids are very aware, so there's def um, they're not confused. They're perfectly capable of acquiring the two languages. Their development is not in any way delayed, especially not when you look at the two languages together. So you take, let's say, a four-year-old English-Chinese bilingual. Now, you might find that that child knows slightly fewer words in English than a typical four-year-old monolingual. And maybe they also know slightly fewer words in Chinese than the typical Chinese monolingual. But if you put the words that they know in both languages, then they know just as many words as any monolingual and quite possibly more. It's just that they might only have one language for one word and the other language. In general, children always acquire the language of the society in which they live. If you're raising a child in the United States, that child will learn English no matter what. So certainly raising a child with another uh, language alongside English is not going to harm their English, but it will give them a chance to learn more. Right. The next question you kind of started to touch on when you mentioned that children are not confused by being raised bilingually, but um, we wanted to ask more generally, what do you think are some common misunderstandings about mm -hmm. bilingualism? Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that was one, obviously, that I brought up. The children are somehow confused. They don't know what language they're learning. And that's manifestly not true. The babies know um, that different languages sound differently. Another one, and this is one I've heard in the past, and I've been hearing it less now, which is encouraging, is that if a child has some kind of a language disorder, you know, or a speech disorder, or a language delay, it used to be, I think, common for them to be, if, if this child was being raised bilingual, it used to be common for the parents to be advised, oh, you know, don't make the problem worse. It's bad enough that the child has a language problem. Don't confuse them with the two languages, just switch to one. Whereas nowadays, I think there's much more understanding in the field that actually, no, um, that is not a helpful advice. If a child has a language disorder or language delay, it will persist in however many languages they speak. But it's good for the child to speak with their parents in whatever language the parents are most comfortable with. And in fact, you know, getting two languages spoken to them, that doesn't make the language delay worse. Um, there's no reason to deprive the child of one of the languages. Obviously, they may need language therapy. They may need help with language development. And ideally, they should get the help with both of the, or all of their languages. I guess, you know, another common myth might be that bilingualism causes delay, and that is manifestly not true. 
Like I said, at most, you might find slight delays with vocabulary if the child is, after all, having to learn vocabulary in two different languages. But it's not, it's not a, you know, if, if, say, a typical monolingual child takes three years, you know, three-year-old has a pretty large vocabulary. Well, if that child is bilingual, they don't need to wait till the age of six. They don't need to be twice as old as a monolingual in order to get that vocabulary. You might see a delay of a few months, or even not even that, at least in the dominant the language that they don't hear as much, that they don't know as well, of course, might take longer to develop. But overall, it's pretty amazing how much language children can, can learn. They can definitely learn a lot. Well, thank you so much for clarifying that. Um, would you characterize monolingual and bilingual language acquisition as more fundamentally similar or different? Well, I would say now, of course, there is a very major difference, right, where the child is learning two linguistic systems instead of one. But the mechanisms that underlie acquisition are the same. If we're dealing with a young child, they have certain grammatical abilities and perceptual abilities that allow them to pick up on language, and they apply those to whatever languages they get. They need a certain amount of input in all of their language. A child who is getting one language 90% of the time and the other one 10% of the time will probably be largely monolingual. They're not going to speak the 10% language all the time. So, you know, for successful development, you need sufficient input. Now, nobody knows what that magic number of sufficient is. And of course, no child is a perfect bilingual with 50% input in each language. But they do need some threshold of input in each language. They, so the child's abilities are the same. The need for the input is the same. The only difference is that they're picking up in two linguistic systems. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us a little bit of insight into how all of this research is conducted an example of the type of study that you might do or, or other researchers do? Sure. So I've already mentioned one with, you know, word order comprehension. That's a very common methodology for um, figuring out how children uh, comprehend grammar. When it comes to early speech development, uh, uh, research labs that work on early infant speech perception, like workers lab or Juzik's lab in the past, um, they, um, they also have all sorts of ingenious technique for testing whether infants can tell, let's say, tell the difference between two streams of language. So, for example, an infant might hear a stream of English, and then it switches over to a stream of Spanish, and the infant might be trained to turn their head when they notice a difference in the speech sound. So, you know, that's how we know that infants can tell that two languages sound different if they turn their head. Um, so a lot of the research that's done with very young infants or toddlers who don't speak much yet is really, it, uh, the goal of that research is really not to put the child under any pressure. They don't really have to do anything. They just need to listen to language in the case of infants um, or to look at screens, you know, with Big Bird and Cookie Monster in the case of toddlers. And researchers simply measure where, what is the child listening to? Where, are, what are they turning their head towards? Which screen are they looking at? So the infant is not being asked to do anything. We just find out what do they listen to, what do they look, and then researchers make their conclusions based on that. Once you get to older children who actually produce language, then you have a wide variety of techniques open. A lot of researchers work with naturalistic speech production, in, you know, most traditional approach to studying children's language development. Audio record the child's speech for an hour every two weeks, transcribe it, and see, you know, what are the characteristics of the speech, what kind of generalizations can we make across children. All sorts of interesting comprehension tasks that can be done with children. For example, you know, show a child, so this is similar to the Cookie Monster example, but with all the kids, we can use pictures. 
show them one picture in which, you know, a cat is hugging a dog and the other in which the dog is hugging a cat, ask them, where is the dog getting hugged by the cat? So can they understand a pat of something? If the dog is being hugged by the cat, can they choose the language? So there are lots of comprehension techniques like that as well. So um, with modern technology, you get all sorts um, of other techniques available. For example, eye tracking, where you have the child looking at a computer screen with various objects on it. They hear and they might hear a sentence. And the question is, okay, which part of the screen would they look at in response to that sentence? And you have an, a camera tracking their eye movements. So we don't have to wait for the end of the sentence and for what the child selects. We can just trace um, where they're looking while they're hearing the sentence. So classic experiments out of Truesdell's lab on that account, the child might hear, put the frog on the napkin in the box. And you've got a screen which shows a frog and a frog on a napkin and an empty napkin and a box. If you get to the end of the sentence, put the frog on the napkin in the box, what you've got to do is take the frog which is on the napkin and put it on the box. But a lot of the time when kids start hearing put the frog on the napkin, what they, what they want to do is they actually look at the frog without napkinless frog, and then they look at the empty napkin because they think that they're supposed to put the frog on the napkin. So you've got all sorts of ingenious techniques like that that can really probe what children understand without even requiring them to put it. That's great. I, I bet the kids have fun too doing all of these things. Um, so the next question I have for you is something that I have heard a lot of parents suggest to other parents. Um, and I, I'm not sure if it's true or not, so maybe you can tell us. Um, can a child learn a language by just watching TV? Like if I want my kids to learn Spanish, can I just put them in front of the TV and make them watch right? Right. So um, the answer is they're probably not going to learn very much. Now, it's true that there hasn't been a whole lot of research specifically on the question. Anecdotally, certainly it seems that doesn't by itself doesn't work very well. They might pick up some vocabularies. But when it comes to really fully learning a language, it seems that children need interaction. Passive input from a television screen is just not enough. So one study which I recall on this topic, um, which uh, Patricia Cool talks about, um, which is where they took infants from English-speaking families and taught and tried teaching them Chinese in three different scenarios. So in one scenario, they had a researcher actually interacting with a child. And in another scenario, they had the same researcher saying exactly the same Chinese words, but on a TV screen in front of the child. The children who interacted with the researcher did learn is the ones who saw that same research on the screen did Now, these were very young right? You might get a very different result with older kids. So well, they may well learn something from instructional videos. Um, but if, so it, it's, you know, it's not going to hurt. If they're watching TV anyway, they might as well learn a language. But they're not going to, it's, it's extremely unlikely, I think, that they would become proficient in a language from TV. Um, we also wanted to ask if you don't mind if you would share a little bit about your personal experiences with mm -hmm. bilingualism or raising bilingual kids. Sure, I'm happy to. So, um, as you mentioned before, I am bilingual in Russian and English. I learned, you know, I was born in Russia. I came to the U.S. at age 12. Um, I had been learning English at school um, in Russia before I came. My husband is also a native speaker of Russian, and we are raising both our kids as fully bilingual in Russian and English. So we, we pretty much use only Russian at home. We're also fortunate to have my parents living next door. So they also they get lots of Russian input from parents and grandparents and some friends as well. So, you know, I think that's the interaction. Again, the interaction component of it is very important. Um, and in fact, with my older daughter, she, her first few years of life, she was monolingual in Russian, despite growing up in the U.S. 
we hadn't specifically planned it that way, but because she stayed home with grandma, you know, while we worked, she was pretty much exposed only to Russian until she went to preschool. And it was really only in kindergarten that her English took off. So, you know, popular wisdom sometimes says that kids pick up a new language immediately. That's actually not true. Young children actually placed in a new language environment can take a few months to even begin using the language. And that was most certainly the case with my older daughter. She would listen, she gradually learned to understand English, but it took her a while to start talking. Did that hurt her English? No. She's a balanced bilingual, she reads in both languages, her English is absolutely native-like, but her Russian is pretty native-like. Uh, with my younger daughter, the situation was a little different for various reasons. She had um, an English-speaking babysitter when she was small. So she got exposure to English alongside Russian, so she was more of a simultaneous bilingual growing up with two languages. And perhaps because of that, English is definitely her stronger language and became a stronger language at a much earlier age than her sister. Nevertheless, she is still pretty fluent in Russian. So, you know, basically I'm quite happy to see that my kids are bilingual, um, that they have both languages. Their English has not suffered, but they've got an extra language. Um, you know, they can talk to their grandparents with no barriers whatsoever. I mean, all of their grandparents do know English, but they're more comfortable with Russian. So it certainly makes a big difference that Russian is the family language. Um, and they like knowing two languages. That's great. <laughs> great. Yeah. Uh, I bet they're going to be really thankful when they're older, hopefully. Um, what would be your advice for parents who want to raise their kids multilingual or bilingual? Like us. <laughs> well, making sure that the kids are getting in, as much input as possible in the language that's not English, because presumably getting, you know, the input in English is not a problem. Um, so it's a goal to get, you know, have the kids keep as much of the other language as you can. Studying English later certainly helps, but, you know, for many families, that's not an option. So in my case, both my husband and I speak Russian. But if only one of the parents speaks the family, you know, say Spanish or Chinese or whatever the language is, and the other one is, doesn't, then of course you're going to have English in the home, and it's just a gift, right? Um, and also, even if both parents do speak the language, you know, if they, you know, I was very lucky to have grandma who could, you know, babysit and speak Russian to my, uh, to my kids, but not oh, that's often not an option. You have to go with daycare, the daycare might be in English. So very often there's nothing much you can do about the timing. So then I would say, well, just try for making sure that, that the, the other language other than English is one that kids get as much as possible. It's nice if they can get it from somebody other than the parents. You know, if, again, it's not always feasible, but if you live in a community where there are other families raising their kids with that same language, Maybe there are playgroups or even some kind of informal schools, you know, or any some kind of a community where your kids can recognize that this home language is not just a home language, um, that they're going to hear it um, somewhere else as well, that there are going to be other kids who are growing up with that language. Um, and then the third factor is literacy. Um, if the kids uh, read and write in the family language, that is certainly helpful in preserving the language. They don't need to be able to read it to monolingual mode. Right. Um, if, if they're not living, if all their education is in English, it's very unlikely that they would be reach monolingual norms in the language that they're not being schooled in. But even some degree of literacy and reading ability tends to help with preserving language. So basically, input, interaction, and literacy. And I would say, you know, it's it's wonderful to aim to raise your child bilingual or multilingual, but of course, it shouldn't override other considerations. Occasionally, you get kids who just really don't want. To they just want to switch to English. They find it difficult, you know, to keep up with the other language. I definitely don't think that family life should suffer on account of bilingualism, right? So, um, you know, I think you should make whatever decisions work best for you and your family so that you're able to fully communicate with your child. And if, you know, if 
you're able to, if, if your child learns the other language and wants to communicate with you in the other language, that's wonderful. But if sometimes maybe you're discussing schoolwork and the kind of academic concepts that come up, the, the, the child just does not know those concepts in your, your family language and they want to switch to English, I think that's fine, right? You don't. Um, it's true that, you know, trying to get the child to, to talk in the family language as much as possible is helpful for keeping that language, but it's also not going to be a possibility in every single situation. Yeah, that's a great reminder that there are other things that are important besides right. just bilingualism. Um, so we wanted to, our last question, we wanted to kind of end on a lighter note. If there, if you have a funny um, code switch or language innovation that your children have produced that you could share? Sure. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is my younger daughter. So she must have been about two years old. Like I said, we spoke Russian at home, but she had an English-speaking babysitter. And at the time, maybe she was even less than two. At the time, I would say Russian was still her primary language, even with the, the babysitter. So the babysitter didn't know Russian whatsoever. So my daughter was certainly making an effort to talk to her in English, but she didn't always have the words. And she was extremely talkative. Um, so one time I came home, the babysitter was still there, and the baby wants she wanted to see her older sister. And she said in Russian, I want to see, and then her sister's name. She said that to me. But then she turned to her babysitter and she clearly wanted to translate that sentence for her babysitter. So, but she didn't know how to say I want in English. So she said, I want in Russian, and then the English version of her sister's name. Aww. Her sister's name <laughs> sounds different in Russian and English. <laughs> Making an effort, <laughs> but she didn't have the verb. The verb was oh, wow. So the babysitter couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Oh, wow. We're asking this question to everybody that we interviewed to show people that this is common. Kids do this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so we wanted to ask you, we have like a super short little game prepared for you if you wanted to participate. We're going to quiz you in on your, your knowledge of child language acquisition. Okay, sure. So, Lauren, you want to read the instructions of our game? Yeah, so I just have four uh, audio clips and that I can play for you. And then just if you can identify how old you think the child in question is or <laughs> some sort of range of possibilities. Okay. We'll, we'll allow a three-month ring. We'll give it a try. All right. Here we go.
around one around one year old yeah that was the 10 month one i think wow good job tanya we're very impressed <laughs> well i play clips like that when i teach my class so <laughs> we knew that's how we're doing this <laughs> well thank you so much for your time uh we're really happy that you were able to join us today uh, we have learned a lot we wish you well and your family and thank you so much for your time tanya well, thank you. Thank you very much for doing this podcast and thank you for inviting me. Okay, and we are going to leave it there for today, but we'll be back next week with the next episode of Multilingual Wellness. Hasta luego. questions go to home in our website and click on the link for questions make sure to follow us on facebook and instagram stay tuned for another episode of multilingual mamas